Jonah the prophet. God's chosen voice for Israel runs from God only to be swallowed up by his extravagant grace. God reveals that his compassion reaches far beyond our imagination and that we and God have competing visions of life. Jonah is more than a children's story. Jonah is a story about us. He's swimming, and I am in his mouth, and I'm like, this is how you're going to go, Michael. This is how you're going to die. All of a sudden, I saw a light, and I could feel his head shaking, and I got thrown out of his mouth into the water. These are the words of Michael Packer, a lobster diver who you may have saw on the news. He was diving for lobster, and then he found himself in the mouth of a humpback whale. He describes uh, 45 seconds to a minute, which you can imagine would have felt like eternity, uh, thinking his time was done. His time was over. And I thought it was so ironic that we're preaching the story of Jonah, and this dude ends up in the mouth of a fish. I don't believe the fish actually swallowed him, but what stood out to me was that he was in the belly of the, or not the belly, he was in the mouth of this whale, this sea creature, for 45 seconds to a minute. And Jonah, we're going to see, was in the belly of a fish for three days and three nights. Think about the time that he was in there. Hey, turn to someone to your left. Tell them good morning. Okay. All right. Turn to someone to your right and tell them, let's hear God's word. Okay, not yet, not yet. So the context of last week, right, we talked a lot about it, and it's from 2 Kings 14. So if you didn't hear uh, the message last week, either go back and listen to it or read 2 Kings 14 because the context is so important. I want to give just a real brief summary of chapter 1. Jonah was a prophet of God, which means what? It means he heard from God and he was chosen by God to bring messages to the Israelites. But in this story... Uh, God called Jonah to go preach to the Ninevites, which not only were outside of God's chosen people, but were Israel's biggest enemy. So, right, Jonah decides this is not in line with my plans for my life. So he decides to run the exact opposite direction to the end of the earth. And what we see is Jonah, as he's trying to flee to Tarshish, we see him go down physically in the text. It talks about down four times but also spiritually. He goes down into this place of apathy and numbness toward God. So he's sleeping on the ship, and all these sailors are panicking because there's a huge storm, but Jonah's content with his disobedience. He is sleeping, and so they come, and they wake him up, and they're like, dude, who do you worship, and who's your God? What's happening? This is your fault. And Jonah basically owns up to it all. He says, I, I'm fleeing from God, and he says, I worship the one true God who oversees the land and the sea. But remember, he so desperately wanted uh, to disobey God. He wanted to lose his life rather than obey what God said. So eventually he tells the sailors, just throw me overboard. It's the only way to save yourself. Super noble of him, not really. And so the sailors, after a little resistance, throw him overboard, and the storm ceases. It's perfectly calm, which causes the sailors to realize, wow, all these gods that we were worshiping are probably useless. This is a god. And so they make vows to the Lord. They worship him. That is where we left off in the story. 
Now, before we read a little bit more, I just want to bring something to light. And I think you could do a lot more study. So if you want to do some homework, this would be one piece that you could go do after the service. But when you immerse yourself in the prophetic books, you'll see they're kind of hard to understand, if I'm honest. I struggle sometimes really grasping the prophetic books. But when you read what these prophets are saying in Scripture, oftentimes they use imagery that is, it talks about uh, being tossed to and fro in the ocean or talks about being swallowed up, being swallowed up by a sea beast. Hosea, I believe it's in chapter 6, but I'm not positive. It could be in chapter 8. But Hosea is one of the first prophets, and he kind of brings this language onto the scene that many other prophets take with them, describing Israel's sin and the consequences that come from their sin. Oftentimes, these images are used. So the author of Jonah, hear this, the author of Jonah comes along and he turns these images into a story about one Israelite who through his entire life actually is a picture and narrative form of Israel. So I say that to just tell you the author knows exactly what he's doing. In fact, the readers and hearers of this would have probably thought of their own faithlessness toward Israel. Yahweh and suffering the consequences. So this language of being swallowed up is powerful imagery that we're about to read. Okay, so last week uh, the story left off pretty bleak, right? Jonah is thrown overboard. In most cases this would be a depressing movie. It would end and you're like, what happened here? We saw Jonah as the disobedient prophet last week and this week we're going to see him as the disciplined prophet. But first let me pray. Father, God, as Gina Lee said earlier, you always move in power. Do we have eyes to see it? And do we have hearts that want to learn? So God, would your word speak in power to us this morning? Would your word change us? Would your word help mold us into the image of Jesus this morning, God? Please give us ears to hear the humility to receive your authority and your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Now, Jonah 1. Go ahead and turn to Jonah 1. Jonah 1, verse 17, don't be ashamed to use your index if you can't find it. Jonah is kind of hard to find because it's so short. It's right after Obadiah and right before Micah. So Jonah 1, 17, it's on the screen as well. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Now, imagine Jonah, right? He is just wanting to die. It's like a dark comedy or something, like, please just let me die. And God keeps saying no, right? In my infuriating compassion, I will not let you disobey me and die. And so what we get is the fish. The fish finally comes in the story. Last week, we talked a little bit about how the fish is what we most recognize when we hear about Jonah. We, we think about the fish, and the Hebrew actually says dagadal, which means giant fish. So God tells this giant fish to swallow Jonah. And I, I think about that, and I wonder, why did God pick the fish he picked? Like, did God in an instant create the fish and just make it do what he wanted the fish to do? Was it the biggest fish in the sea? I have no idea why God picked this fish, and I have no idea how God called the fish. I don't know if you ever think creatively like that. Like, what did that look like? Did he just tweak something in his mind? Was there something audible? If it was anything like Finding Dory, he used echolocation. Those of you who have kids might find that a little more funny. But the point is, God speaks and the fish obeys. It's the first of four times we see the Hebrew word for a point 
in this book. The first usage of it, we'll see it four times, and it underscores God's sovereignty. God appointed the fish. God's sovereignty refers to God's power, God's authority, or as I like it said, nothing happens in the universe outside of God's influence and authority. He controls everything. This fish didn't just stumble upon Jonah. God appointed the fish. COVID-19 and everything that came with it did not catch God by surprise. He was not startled. Political elections, and you could just go on and on. These things are being held in control by God, and we don't always understand it, but here we see that God is doing something. He's active. He's engaged. He's involved, and he sends a fish to rescue Jonah despite his disobedience. And that's my first point this morning is God rescues us despite our disobedience. It's God's mercy, right? He's showing compassion toward Jonah when Jonah did nothing to deserve God's compassion. God probably should have just let him die. At least that's what would have seemed fair to us. But he didn't. He rescued him. So let me ask you, has God ever rescued you from a situation that was caused by your own disobedience? Right? Like, could I raise my hand any more? God has rescued all of us when we have caused situations by our own disobedience. And it really is a story of our faith, right? It's really the story of our faith that, that when we sinned against a holy God, God still loved us and demonstrated that by sending his son. God rescues Jonah with a fish, but we know eventually, right, he would rescue all of us by sending his son. Verse 17 goes on to say that Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now, this is significant because in Matthew 12, Jesus actually talks about Jonah. One of only four prophets that Jesus talks about, he mentions Jonah by name. And leading up to this passage that we're about to read in Jesus' ministry, it had been going on for years, and Jesus had done miracles and signs and wonders, but the Pharisees continually rejected him. It didn't matter what he did, they were out to get him, and they had hard hearts. Let's read this together, Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 through 41. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. It was right in front of their faces, actually. Jesus calls his generation adulterous because they were not satisfied ever in what Jesus was doing. It wasn't enough to change their hard hearts. He had already given them many, many signs, right? For our study this morning, Matthew 12 helps us see, I just want to point out two things. The first is the historical truth of Jonah. This helps paint a picture that Jonah, it's a real event. It really happened. It's historical. The second thing in light of our text today that I want to point out is God references Jonah to talk about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
That's what he's doing here in Matthew 12, at least. So feel free to do some more study on your own about Matthew 12 and how this text interacts. But here, God is saying, God's word is saying, Jesus is saying, this really happened, this is true. And also, he points to Jonah to point to one future sign to the Pharisees in his death and resurrection. Now, let's go to chapter 2, and uh, we're going to see what is Jonah doing in the fish. Here's where we get brought into what Jonah is doing in the fish. Jonah is doing what all of us would be doing, right? He's writing an intricate poem. That's what, I know that's what you would be doing if you were in the belly of a fish. You would write this beautiful, intricate, scripture-filled, absorbed poem and prayer of thanksgiving to God. Let's read the first few verses of chapter 2. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. And when it says Lord in all caps, I just want to point out, uh, it doesn't here in the text, but it should. Or it, it does in the text, but it doesn't on the slide. When it says Lord in all caps, which you should see in your Bible if you have it, that means the personal name of God. That means Yahweh. So Jonah prayed to Yahweh, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Quick little teaching lesson. Sheol is Hebrew for place of the dead. It's the same as, as Hades is in Greek, place of the dead, but not to be confused with hell, which is lake of fire. So what Jonah is doing is he's describing a near-death experience and there are so many scripture references. That's another homework assignment if you like doing some homework in your free time. Go look at all the different scripture references that Jonah talks about. He knows his Bible. He knows his scripture. I just want to highlight a couple of them this morning. And I have some slides here to kind of show you how similar they are. Jonah 2.2 and Psalm 18.6. And Jonah the second verse of chapter 2 says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. Let's look at Psalm 18.6. In my distress I called upon the Lord. To my God I cried for help. From his temple he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. Let's go ahead and see uh, the next one here. Jonah 2.3 and Psalm 88.6 and Psalm 42.7. It first says in Jonah, You cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. It says in the Psalms, You have put me in the depths of the pit and the regions dark and deep. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. Jonah is, is quoting, he's referencing, excuse me, he's referencing all these scriptures. I counted 22, but th there could be more, or maybe there's a couple less. But there's so many scriptures that he's referencing. And so I want to ask you, this is the prayer. This is the prayer that Jonah's praying. Do you ever pray scripture? Do you ever pray God's word back to God? I, I find it very helpful. In fact, this last season, uh, I was praying Isaiah 41.10. It was a kind of a theme verse for our church. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. 
If you pray to God in times of need, part of the beauty of knowing and memorizing Scripture is when you are in a deep mercy of God or you are in the belly of a fish or a storm, you can cry out to God and say, God, I don't fear for I know, I know you are with me. I know you will strengthen me. I know you will help me. I know you will uphold me. And I think Jonah comes to this place of prayer because he's finally realizing he can't outrun God, right? He's finally realizing, I I have nowhere to go. I'm in the belly of a fish, and God, he won't let me die. And he's clearly in control of all these things. And so he prays thanksgiving. And so if you find yourself in a similar spot as Jonah in the belly of a fish, it might be dark or sticky or smelly, pray and pray Scripture. Pray Scripture. My Jonah moment this morning, and remember a Jonah moment is, a, is kind of like a light bulb moment where we realize, or before we realize, we look at Jonah and we say, dude, you are so dumb. What are you thinking? How could you possibly do something so stupid? But then we look in the mirror and realize we do the exact same thing, even if it looks a little bit different. So my Jonah moment this morning is it took Jonah being swallowed by a fish to turn back to God. It took Jonah being swallowed by a fish. The storm didn't cause him to turn back to God. Obviously, the voice of God before that didn't cause him. It took the end of his ropes for him to turn back. And I want to unpack how we do this, church, how we run from God. God tells us to do something that goes against our vision of our life, and we turn and we go the other way. We resist or we run. And let me give a few examples to unpack a couple of these might seem extreme or really obvious, but, but certainly uh, drug and alcohol addiction. You see, like you know that God's word says don't get drunk. You know that it's not good for your body and, and your family, yet you go in this direction and you keep doing it and to the point of sometimes utter destruction, right? Lose your family, your job, maybe your life. Another example would be those who have wrestled with porn addictions. You know what God's word says about looking at that. Yet, you keep doing it, running from God, tuning God out, until maybe you lose your job, your marriage is on the brink, your relationship with your kids is on the brink. Let me give another example. Social media. Some of you, some of you are on social media, and you know it's not good for you. You know it, because you constantly compare yourself to other people. You lack gratitude on what God has given you and crave for more of the ads and things that these uh, show you that you really need to be happy in life. Or maybe you compare your own mundane, mundane life to other people's highlight reel that they post on social media. And you get to a place of maybe severe anxiety, depression, discontentment, but yet you hold on. For some of you, it's pride. Pride is one that is a little easier to hide and cover up. But for some of you, it's pride, and you know it's wrong, and it might even be ruining your marriage or your relationships with your family or your kids. Yet you don't turn and obey and humble yourself before a mighty, sovereign God. Sometimes it's like we're at the end of our ropes, and that's the only time we turn back to God. But God, in his unbelievable compassion and his mercy for us, he brings us back to himself. A lot of times, it manifests itself through a storm. 
I love how this, one of the songs we sang, uh, when the, the storm or the winds, when the seas, right, the storms bring us nigh. Like God has to sometimes bring these storms to bring us back to him. That was such a fun lyric to sing this morning. Or maybe it's through a brother or sister in Christ who rebukes you, who speaks truth, hopefully in grace, but, but truth in your life. And let me just say, if you don't have someone who speaks truth in your life, you are like walking around with a red flag, take it to the bank. We all need someone who speaks, who speaks truth to us, even if it's hard to hear. An accountability partner, a mentor, someone who is willing to say, Brad, you've messed up. Brad, you're straying from God. The Lord uses the body of Christ to do that so often. And so what does God do to get us to this place of turning our eyes back on him. He disciplines us. He's disciplining Jonah in this situation because Jonah was not turning to God until God disciplined him. This is my second point. God disciplines us to turn back to him. God disciplines us to turn back to him. And discipline, it doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel good if you're the one being disciplined, right? Oh, sanctifying, awful awful feeling. Uh, And it doesn't really feel good to discipline other people, unless you're like a little sadistic or something. But for the most part, right, us loving parents and people, it doesn't feel good to discipline people. If you, if you have children, there's like no better, no better picture. There's, there's no better picture than our relationship with God, right? Than us as his children and God as our father, because our kids do things and we constantly, we shake our heads. Why? Why would you be so dumb? Why would you do that? But then, right, you look in the mirror too and realize, wow, this is me doing things against what God says. This happens in so many ways, right? Like one of our kids wanting to touch a hot stove. Like, no, this will not bring you life to touch this hot stove. I, I want you to be happy. I want you to have good things. I want you to have abundant life. But it's not what you think it is, children, right? For us, Amari, our son, is two and a half. And his new really awesome fun thing is he likes to run into the street, right? <laughs> he likes to run out in, the, in parking lots or run into the street. And we've tried <clears throat> like many different strategies. I'm very strategic. I like to try different things. And uh, none of them seem to be working. But what we have landed on recently is a kind of a game. It, it's we call out freeze. So we do this in very non-threatening situations to get him used to it. And then when a situation comes where he's actually disobeying and he's running into the street in a dangerous situation, we go, freeze, right? And he's supposed to just jump and stop where he's at. And it works like 40% of the time. (laughs) About 40% of the time, which are not good odds, probably not the best strategy. But he has a big smile on his face when he does it, and it's really, really cute. But when he, when he doesn't, that other 60% of the time or whatever, I have to discipline him. I have to, I have, and he thinks I'm raining on his parade, right? He thinks I'm, I'm knocking his fun life. But I have to either spank him or just warn him, this is dangerous. This is not good. That gets his attention, right? That gets his attention. And that's what Jonah is doing, or that's what God is doing to Jonah. Jonah hits rock bottom, and he's disciplined and met by God. Let's keep reading in verse 4 through 7. It says, Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. 
I kind of picture like a, a seaweed turban thing going on right now. Weeds were wrapped about my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit. O Lord, my God, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Kind of reminded of that Jonah moment again, right? His life was fainting away. That is when he turned to God, right? When he was at the end of his ropes, which is what we do. As I mentioned, Jonah, he's referencing so many scriptures here. So go, go back and, and check them out, cross-reference them. But he's in the fish, and he's describing all these things that are happening to him, right? Waters are enveloping me, and the deep surrounded me, and I was at the root of the mountains, and bars closed upon me forever. He was at the brink of death is what he's describing, and he realizes he can't run. And so what does he do? He finally moves toward God. Ultimately, what Jonah is saying is he will obey God. Let's read that in the last couple verses of his prayer. It says, Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. This is the end of Jonah's prayer, but the last verse in this chapter goes on to say, And the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. We're going to get to that more next week. But, but he wraps his prayer, he wraps his prayer, and he's talking about idols. And I find, find that very interesting. In fact, in verse 8, it says, Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. The King James Version does a, a better job of capturing the Hebrew here. It says, They forsake their own mercy. So in studying that, I kind of came up with my own definition of what that means. It means they gave up the compassion or forgiveness that God was trying to give them. Those are powerful words. And so why is Jonah ending his prayer talking about idols, right? He's in a fish. There's probably bones of fish. I don't even really know what fish eat, if I'm totally honest. I think they eat other fish. But there's probably bones of fish, and it's sticky, and it's dark. And and he's talking about idols. And, And I realized as I was studying this and praying, like, what is Jonah's idol? Like he wants to die. He wants to disobey God. And it's that he wanted to chart his own course. It's like he wanted autonomy from God, an independence to live his life, his vision of life, the way that he wants. And when we think of, of idols, we think of statues or carved sculptures or gold. But we all have idols, and Jonah wanted to do his own course. He wanted to do life his own way. He wanted God to give compassion to who Jonah wanted God to give compassion to. And when we do this, we forfeit the mercy that God intends to us. There's different beliefs on how genuine Jonah is in this prayer. Different commentators uh, believe different things. Was he truly turning and repenting, or was he just acknowledging what God did for him? Because in the prayer, that's all he really does, is he just kind of acknowledges in God's sovereignty what God did for him. He doesn't appear to own his sin. I think of Psalm 32.5, where the psalmist says, uh, I, I did not cover up my sin. I did not cover up my iniquity. I acknowledge my sin to you. He doesn't do that, that we know of at least, right? We can only really speculate about how much of Jonah's heart at this point in the story was turned back 
to God. But we do know, we do know that God is working on Jonah's heart, that God is molding Jonah into his image. And that's my third point this morning. My last point is God's highest priority is to mold you into the image of Jesus. God's highest priority is to mold you into the image of Jesus. God is softening Jonah's heart toward his enemies, right? Jonah is a self-entitled, chosen person of God. And he's like, I'm not going to bring a message of repentance to those evil people. There's a little bit of tribalism going on here, a lack of compassion for the lost, right? And many times we think like Jonah, whether we would admit it or not, church, we think like Jonah, God's priority for my life is to make me comfortable it's to make me happy. It's to make me safe. I'm, I'm guessing you wouldn't admit that. But your attitude toward God in certain seasons would certainly reveal it. And I think, I know for me, living a life for Christ is the most abundant life. And I'll be the first one to tell you that. But my whole life experience would tell me it's very naive to think that God's main purpose is to make me comfortable. That's a very naive thought. I think about the Great Commission, right? Jesus saying, go and make disciples, telling them everything that I've commanded you to do. At Fox Valley Church, we say, uh, we're at our best when we're telling and showing the story of Jesus. Telling and showing the story of Jesus does not often make me feel safe and comfortable, but it's molding me into the image of Jesus. And life, life is just hard, right? Life is hard. I feel it so much. I feel it in, in my, my marriage. I feel it in my family with our three little kids. It is so hard. God's grace is sufficient, but it's hard. It's hard. And we have to trust, especially if you're in a season of a storm, right, that God only has his best in mind for you as he's shaping you into the image of his son, Many of you know Romans 8, 28. It says, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. If you are here this morning in person, or you are online, you're, you're watching, you're paying attention, and you've never given lordship of your life to God, I want to give you an opportunity to do that. The Bible says that when we were sinners, Christ came to die for us, that, that Jesus left perfection in heaven to come down and to die for our sin. And if we confess that he is Lord and we believe that he lived that perfect life and he paid the price of all of our past, our present, our future sin on the cross and he raised from the dead and he's now sitting with the Father, and he's seated right next to him. If we believe that, we can have eternal life. And I want to give you the opportunity to make Jesus the Lord and the leader of your life. It is the most abundant life. And those of you who are Christians this morning, I know many of you are in, many of you are in seasons of storms. One of the things I truly love about being a pastor is getting to know the situations of the congregation, of you all, and what's going on. And when, when I'm up here singing or preaching, I'm thinking of you, and I'm, I'm petitioning to God as we worship and what's going on in your life. It moves me in a deep way. And so I know many of you are fighting for your marriage. Many of you are fighting for your marriage. And God is using this moment, this, this conflict in your marriage, to shape you, to grow your faith, and to shape you in the image of a son. And, and remember that thing in the Bible it talks about? It talks about dying to yourself when you get married? That is not my vision of life at all. That, that, is, that is hard. 
there are other things that are going on and health afflictions and different storms that are going on. And I, I know there's so much and we just have to cling to what God is really doing and what his word says he's doing. And I also just want to acknowledge, I want to take a minute and I want to acknowledge those of you who are in a storm, but it, it wasn't caused by your own sin or disobedience. That, that does happen. I'm not saying if you're in a rough spot, it's because of your disobedience, right? Just read, read Daniel, read Job, these men of God who end up in these situations because of things outside of their control. And so if you have been deeply hurt by someone else's sin, I am incredibly sorry. I'm very sorry. I had a pastor, Steve Gregg in Florida, told me one time, it was very humbling, like, Brad, you can always own up to 1%. At least 1% is always your fault. And I've I've tried to make that a mantra for my life. Even if I'm so stubborn and prideful, none of this is my fault. I try to humble myself before God and that person. But with that said, some of you have been deeply, deeply hurt by other people's sin. And And I want to tell you something this morning those of you who are hurt because of your own sin or someone else's sin, that there is no sin of my own or another that is beyond God's redemptive reach to use as an opportunity to shape me in a deep way. It's a quote by Tim Mackey that I hold dear to my heart. In fact, I want us all to say this out loud together and believe this. Can we say this together, church? Ready? There is no sin of my own or another that is beyond God's redemptive reach to use as an opportunity to shape me in a deep way. Amen. I want to invite the band to go ahead and come out. But before we sing one more song, I want to say don't look to your circumstances Don't look to your circumstances as a reliable indicator about how God feels about you. Church, my family, you are my family, my brothers and sisters in Christ. My family, you can only turn to the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. That is all you can turn to. And when you come to that place, when you come to the place where you realize that Jesus is really all that I have, right? Jesus is all that I have, and it takes a storm sometimes to come to that, but Jesus is all that I have. That is when powerful transformation takes place in your life. So church, would you stand with me, my my family, people I love, and we have the decision today to follow God, to follow his vision of life, and we have to trust that he is good. He only has what is best for me. So this morning, let's start just by by start building our life around this truth just by simply worshiping and enjoying the goodness of our God.